Welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us this year as we venture into Valerian with the great heroes of the Elder Days and do battle with the Dark Lord Morgoth. We hope you enjoy our discussion of the Silmarillion. Okay, so we are on uh, of men of return of the Noldor and of Valerian and its realms. So we'll go around, something you like, something you want to talk about, something you're interested in, and then we will uh, proceed there. Um, I'll go first, and we'll go uh, clockwise. And uh, I actually really like Thingol in, in uh, of The Return of the Noldor. I'm I'm Jordan, as usual. Uh, I <laughs> I had a busy I had a busy weekend. I didn't uh, get through all the chapters uh, yet uh, this time around. Uh, I was uh, I've been quite amused at just some of the descriptions. Uh, the, the comment about the light of a monster being the eyes of the Noldor when they landed oh. right? had made me laugh because of the cheesy way I imagined them with glowing eyes in my head. But uh, I, the the return and the, the the like the battle under the stars, very I thought it was very cool. And of course, uh, Feanor getting killed by Dothmog and then burning up into ash is a very cool image. Um. I liked how Valerian and its realms actually, I think. Because there's some there's some weird things <coughs> in there concerning uh, the behavior of Melkor's minions and uh, the girdle of Melian that I found interesting. So uh, we can probably expand on that later when we get there, but mm-hmm. I did not get to read it until just now. So little That opening sentence though. <laughs> You're right. The Valar sat now behind their mountains at peace. Lots of talk over there. Um, I I think this is a this is a good sequence of chapters. You get all sorts of fun things, like the sons of Feanor have actual individual personalities, <laughs> and um, you know, Feanor rescues Myros, and it's awesome. Um, but there's one line in the of men chapter. Actually, the of men chapter is pretty great too. But um, it says, the dawn is brief and the day full often belies its promise. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that's so, like, poignant because you have all of these different parts of the Silmarillion where everything is wonderful at the beginning, right? And you get to see um, places and the <coughs> peoples in the fullness of their splendor and then everything falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, instead of coming into greatness... Right as time goes on, they really come into disaster. Um, I, I do, I do adore Valeria and his realms, but two, two very brief things. Um, number one, the pointer that the orcs and the forces of Morgoth never use water to their advantage, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a very unfortunate battle tactic. <laughs> and number two, <coughs> that. The Noldor are very annoyed at 
Thingol's commands and where they're allowed to live. And then they all go and obey them anyway. So, um, my favorite point is on the very first page. That doesn't mean I didn't do the readings. Um, so, at the first rising of the sun, the younger children of Iluvatar awoke, um, which is really fascinating because there's an amazing mix between the free will and the creativity that the Valor are working in, and then the song that Iluvatar is working one isn't necessarily in charge of the other, but they're like always interweaving and relying on each other. I have, okay. I also really liked um, Of the Return of the Noldor because um, I don't have anything against Valerian in its realms, but like Of the Return of the Noldor is like, um, has like, the personal history behind of Valerian and its realms, this which is, is really cool. And I really, really liked the like characterization behind the establishment of the different kingdoms um, and where these people went, like especially with Finrod and with Mithros. And like Mithros' characterization is also just really good in this chapter and how he like deliberately gives himself the kingdom that's likeliest to be attacked. Yeah. And how like his brothers are pieces of shit, but like he's really, really trying. Um, and like, it's just, oh, it's really good. And also, I feel like of the return of the Noldor, like, there's so much in this chapter um, and so many gaps to fill. Like, this, I feel like this chapter would be an entire season of yeah. a TV series. And also, just like building off of that whole, like, the men awake at the first sunrise, like, like, the first sunrise, like, two things happen at the exact same time, which is Fingolfin enters Valerian at the exact same moment that the men awake somewhere far to the east. And you don't get that juxtaposition in the text because they're chapters apart. But if you had that visual juxtaposition, it would be so good. So good. Not split screens. Split screens are disgusting, Tristan. You're wrong. And you need a John Williams, you need a John Williams score to like underpin that. Yeah, scene. exactly. Or hands on. Yes, yes, that's a yeah, good point. Um, I really enjoyed that we finally got to see a little bit of the Dark Hells, if only a little bit. Mm-hmm. They really do consistently just put nothing, mm-hmm. but they showed up and said hi to the men, and that was okay. Um, <laughs> that was the extent of their history. Hey, Hellborn is a dark. Actually, no, he's not a dark elf. No, no, no. He's like a green elf or something. He's a kinsman of Thingol. Yeah, Cinder. He's a bull Cinder. Anyway, um, there was something about. Oh yeah, I also just enjoyed the Finrod and Fingon escapades in the Return of the Noldor. It's just like they're off kind of doing their own thing, having having some fun, but they're actually enjoyable characters and <coughs> terrible people, which is a nice change from. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of which, uh, yeah, these chapters were great. I couldn't quite bring myself to read Valerian of its, uh, in its realms this time around. 
just I've been burdened by that before. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, of the Return of the Nold Lord was really cool. Like just Baynor's death, like you know, the award for coolest death goes to him. Just honestly, you killed by a Balrog and then you just disintegrate it to ash. Like honestly, how cool is that? Um, and it's entirely befitting. And and now my accolade of my favorite Noldor goes from Feanor to Mydros because he is just awesome in this chapter. And my favorite scene was the moment between Fingon and Mydros after he's rescued from from Engband. It was just a really kind of sweet and poignant just scene where like they reconcile their differences and it's just that, that, that in the feast. And I just felt good reading the, those bits just given all the, the, the turmoil and the kinslaying and the you know, divisions and that. This is where they all finally sort of come together and join in common purpose. And it's just it's a beautiful thing to witness. That was my favorite scene. Nice. Yep. Can Sophia? I throw in something really quick? Though? Yeah. I hope that we eventually do get to Valerian and its realms, though, because I want to talk about the rivers. Yeah. Because yes. it's really interesting. Yeah, That's we're actually going to start with Valerian and its realms, because I feel if we don't, we won't give it its due time. <laughs> Plus, I think Josh has to be halfway through, so I'm <laughs> sure that we have time to... Uh, and so to start with that, I'm going to read a piece from The Two Towers, which I'm sure that you will be familiar with. This is in uh, the chapter uh, Treebeard. So the hobbits have met Treebeard, and they're talking about uh, light. And uh, Treebeard says, Some of my kin look just like trees now and need something great to rouse them, and they speak only in whispers. But some of my trees are limb-lithe, and many can talk to me. Elves began it, of course, waking trees up and teaching them to speak and learning their tree talk. They always wished to talk to everything, the old elves did. But then the great darkness came, and they passed away over the sea or fled into far valleys and hid themselves and made songs about days that would never come again, never again. Aye, aye, there was one. There was all one wood once upon a time from here to the mountains of Loon, and this was just the east end. Those were the broad days. Time was when I could walk and sing all day and hear no more than the echo of my own voice in the hollow hills. The woods were like the woods of Loch Morian, only thicker, stronger, younger. And the smell of the air... I used to spend a week just breathing. <laughs> Treebeard fell silent, striding along, and yet making hardly a sound with his breathing. Then he began to hum again and passed into a murmuring chant. Gradually the hobbits became aware that he was chanting to them. In the willow meads of Tassarium I walked in the spring. Ah, the sight and the smell of the spring in Nan Tassarion. And I said that was good. I wandered in the summer in the elm woods of Assyrian. Ah, the light and the music in the summer by the seven rivers of Assyria. And I thought that was best. To the beaches of Naldareth I came in the autumn. Ah, the gold and the red and the sighing of leaves in the autumn in Tarn and Eldor. It was more than my desire. To the pine trees upon the high land of Dorthonian I climbed in the winter. Ah, the wind and the whiteness and the black branches of winter upon Oridnathon. My voice went up and sang in the sky. And now all those lands lie under the wave. And I walk in Ambarona, in Taranorna, in Aldalame, in my own land, in the country of Fangor, where the roots are long and the years lie thicker than the trees in Taranmoralome. He ended and strode on silently. And in all the wood, as far as the ear could reach, there was not a sound. So I remember reading that and not having any clue what he was talking about until I read of Valerian and his realms. And suddenly it all 
And it made me again appreciate the depth of Tolkien's works. So, Valerian and its realms. <clears throat> I want to talk to Treebeard and be like, hey, do you remember Feanor? <laughs> Actually, probably not Feanor. Feanor died too soon. Yeah. But you could probably be like, hey, Treebeard. Like, do you remember Fingen? Fingen walked a lot. <laughs> yeah, Fingen did a lot of walking. And Finrod. Yeah, he probably would have met Baron and Luthien. Oh, he did meet them. Oh, he did? Well, we maybe not him, but the ants for sure. Okay. Okay, so I actually have some notes on this from a long time ago, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing I wrote was Leviticus. I wonder why. <laughs> anyone anyone who knows the biblical story knows that Leviticus is one of those books that are really hard to get through. Yeah. yeah. Nobody ever reads Leviticus. Exactly. So that's kind of like this. You know, I think someone, I think it was, it was Corey Olson once who sort of said there's like two humps you have to get over in the summer early. The first one is... This is the second one. I can't remember what the first one is. If you, and if you get past this one, then you're free and clear yes. and, and you get through. I feel like this is the first one's probably the Battle of Quinta. I, I don't think it was the Battle of Quinta. But it may, may, maybe, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it, or, no, it's the elves. It's the it's it's all the elves. The the, the party of the elves. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah where the, the elves become all the, all the elfish families. Yeah. And all the, where they become a new people, people when they stop by the road, or then they stop by the river, or yeah, they stop by the forest, or they become stop by the right. shore, and they're entirely new people yeah. with new names, and yeah. there's like fifty of them. And, yeah. Um, okay, so. Um, Obviously, I've made some notes here. The goal is not to try to memorize everything. You're not going to remember. It's you don't have to unless you're Josh and you really <laughs> like it. Uh, because, of course, there's a huge amount of names. Uh, the other thing, if you're keen on the languages, this is the chapter for you. Yeah. Right? Um, no, it's great for story, excellent for research. Right. Um, Tolkien loved this stuff. This was his... Yeah. You almost imagine him in his mind walking... Through Valerian, right? And describing it as he walks, and knowing that no one's ever going to read it anyway. So, yeah, where does he go? I can say that, very related to that, this honestly feels like one of his best um, masterpieces of self creation mm -hmm. um, and disbelief because, like, it, when I'm reading it, it doesn't feel like a fiction. Mm -hmm. It feels like sketching out an unknown land. It feels yeah. like this is how it actually happened. Um, like completing a reality rather than a fiction. Um, anyway, that's, that's about it. Okay, good. Any other just sort of initial comments on Valerian and its realms for those who, who managed to get through it? I think this was yeah, oh yeah. Robert? I think this was inspired by something I read a while ago, but the geology makes no sense. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, and we actually had someone do a presentation. That was Mitch. Mitch, and he actually Tec argued. Tectonic. Yeah, he argued. He argued for why the geology could make sense. Of Middle Earth, not Middle Earth. Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. I, I specifically Mordor. I remember the Mordor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't think even he could explain Hithlum. No, maybe <laughs> not. Yeah. Yeah. Melkor did it. Jordan, you had something. Um, another. Uh, there's another point I remember from. Corey Olson, because uh, he mentioned that we never really think about it, but Tolkien was also 
I mean, a big landscape painter. He liked right. he liked painting landscapes. He's done. He did like Bag End and Hobbit yeah. and stuff like that. So the the this entire chapter and the way he kind of is like he's walking through it and kind of you know mapping it out kind of from the ground. I think really has something to do with him imagining it not just as a map but as a landscape painter going from that perspective you're looking up at the at the rock faces and the fortresses and of course as also kind of a historian of his own world he's also like yeah so there's the forest and that's where Angolian went and bred all her you know spider monsters and it turned all dark and you know no one else went there ever and now you turn this way to the south and now there's, there's something there but yeah. that kind of that how that works you know you're, you're almost he's almost he's trying to do landscapes in text which is a lot harder you know picture yeah. worth a thousand words but he's only got words for the moment and maps yeah so that's you know kind of i, I think kind of a, if you almost go into the chapter thinking of it that way and not as you know kind of the narrative that he's been talking about i think it probably reads a lot easier Okay. Yeah, Sophia? So, like, one of the things that I'd always just been like, oh, weird quirk of Tolkien when I was reading, like, Lord of the Rings. And for some reason, even though I'd, like, read The Silmarillion and, like, knew this, I just never made the connection, was just with the fact that he doesn't put the in front of river names. Right. Um, like we say, the North Saskatchewan, he doesn't. He says, Brynion flowed into Anduin, yeah. or where Aros flowed into Syrian. But then, for some reason, I don't know why this had never clicked for me before, but it's just like clicked when I was reading of Valerian and his films, because he's using river names the same way you would use the proper name for a person. Right. You don't say the Rick, you just say Rick. Um, and so he's treating his rivers the same way, which was just like super interesting, because... Um, like, the rivers are characters with individual names and individual characters and individual personalities, which is really interesting. And you even have this discussion of, like, for after Syrian, Ulmo loved Gelian above all waters, which is, like, at first you're, like, like, you think of Aule, and Aule loves the things that he creates in a sort of, like, I created this sort of sense. But, like, Ulmo seems to love the rivers in, like, a... I like this one for its individual personality and this other one for its individual personality sort of thing, which is really interesting because he technically created them, but at the same time, they're obviously, like, in, like entities beyond him at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, which is... I don't know. It's just, like... I see what you mean, where you told me to go look for the description of the rivers in the yeah. Silmarillion, because it's just, like... Really, really interesting, and it also makes a lot of sense why there's so much discussion of rivers later, and like when kingdoms fall, like rivers are defiled. Like right. Tolkien actually seems to see the defilement of a source of water as the actual <laughs> loss of a life, which is just like really interesting in the Silmarillion world. So yeah, yeah. my my point is just that rivers are people. Right. <laughs> in fact, they're the only they're, they're the only <clears throat> characters in the chapter. Like that, that actually that have prone they have pronouns, right? They're personally active, personal active verbs, right? Yeah. They're the only ones, right? They're the most dynamic characters. They're kind of like the protagonists of the chapter. Mm. Yeah, Nick. 
Well, and it's sort of similar to kind of Greek mythology where you have like um, kind of river spirits or river like uh, gods and such. Like, you know, they, they are named and they sort of have a, a will unto themselves. Okay. Yeah. I want to say that it's actually very different. Um, fair warning, I've been talking about this shit all semester. Hashtag ego criticism class. Um, <laughs> but like, there's, I, th- I think there's actually like a huge difference between the idea of um, a river inhabited by an entity with a personality um, and the river itself being a body, like being an entity, because um, like in Greek mythology, you have this idea of like the god of this river That's and true. that god yeah. can come out of that river and fight as well as like manipulate the river. So there's like a separation <coughs> between the body of that river god and the body of the river itself whereas like in this case Tolkien is treating like the river itself as a body that also has a mind mm-hmm. rather than like something inhabiting something right which is yeah kind of like the ocean in Moana yeah totally like the ocean in Moana <laughs> so why do you think that's the case why does he do this with rivers Other than like that, he really loved them and yeah. saw individual life in them. Mm-hmm. I think it's part. Yeah, Ryan. Um. So, I I do want to say that I I think that yes, he's portraying them in the sense of persons, but it's safe to say within the mythology, it has to be strictly metaphorical. Um, they're not actually making decisions. They're not actually protagonists. Like, I was going to make the analogy when you were speaking about Aoi, that, like, the rivers to Umo are, like, the dwarves to Aoi, in a sense. Um, they're his creation, but they have a life of their own. Um, but you don't have a creation story. You don't have um, a Lumitar coming in, because they don't have will. there is a obvious connection to Umo, right? Uh, and Umo's um, particular care for Valerian and for its people that seems to be almost unique among the Valar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also you end up, because of that, the rivers become a kind of lifeline or a kind of 
the source of the life of Valeria, right? Almost like veins carrying blood to the heart. You know, like the rivers become that sort of serve that kind of function. Again, maybe um, in a in a before I don't know what we mean by that. But certainly, it's not allegory, right? Um, but in a sense of the the life of Valerian is in the rivers, right? Uh, this is why, like, did you notice that, uh, is it in, in uh, Becoming the Noldor, the Return of the Noldor, that the pools of Ivrin are mentioned for the first time, right? So, of course, those come back in the story of Turin in a really important way, so you want to pay attention to that. But already here, they have some kind of significance, right? That's where they have the great feast, right? It's at the pools of Ivrin, right? Mm -hmm. So, um... Yeah, yeah. So they're kind of like, yeah, they're 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 dynamic characters in, in the chapter. I made a note here. I don't know why seven rivers, seven Valar, seven stars. I don't know why I did that, but there's something there. Seven rivers. Assyrian is the seven rivers of Assyrian. Right? Yeah, probably um, just really likes the number seven. So seven, seven, seven. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, why is an Angman on the map? Yeah, I was looking at that too. There, there's never a good map of the lands of Morgoth. Mm -hmm. I'm very sad about because <laughs> who would be who would be there to map it? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, that was countless, okay, that's, like countless that's one, prisoners taken. That's one reason. They'd at least know where it is. Yeah. Wouldn't they at least have a big sign saying "There be dragons"? Literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's on the big map. No, it's not. It's no? not. I don't think it's on any map. Oh. Well, that's... I was, I was working on a big map, and I got to the start of this, and it's like, I swear Angbans. Yeah, Iron Mountains and Angbans. Angbans. Yeah, it ends up this job. Oh, wow, okay. Um, Corey Olsen suggests that it's, you know, this is a story about the elves, and so there's no reason for them to put a non-elvish realm on their map. But they... Yeah, but it also features really heavily... Mm. Also, doesn't, yeah. doesn't the big map have dwarf realms on it? Doesn't the big map have no. Malgrad and Belagos? No? Um, mm -hmm. It might. It has places where the elves interacted with the dwarves. So well, it should have places where the elves interacted with the guy that they interact with yeah. that you forms the plot of the But they don't interact with him there. But it may yeah, be they also... Do. They go up to the gates of Angband. Right. That's exactly what Fingolfin dies. It may be it may be to, to include it on the map is to acknowledge it in some way. I think as, so, as I think it's the more menacing if you don't know exactly where it is. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe yeah. it's moving on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of Angband, uh, what does Angband mean, Josh? Um Iron Fortress, I believe. Certainly yeah, like Hells of Iron or Iron Yeah, Iron Fortress, Iron Prison. Um, the Book of Lost Tales, remember how it describes Angband? Really nasty? Cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of hell, right? Um, I'm just kind of looking at my notes. Uh, yeah. And, and even, in, even in the uh, second paragraph of Valerian Those Realms, it ends with Pits and broken rocks before the doors of hell. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, in the book of Lost Tales, does isn't it doesn't it suggest that that bad people end up there? That's then that that never shows up again. That he abandons. 
He plays around. He plays around with that. Like last time. But anyway, that 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 sort of ends. Um, but um, of course, so it's a prison, right? But who is it a prison for? Well, in some ways, it's Morgoth. Exactly. In some ways, it's a, but it's a prison for Morgoth. Like, right? comes out once and then yeah. never again. Right. So, and also the very crown, if you remember, that he has the Silmarils in is the one that ends up being hammered into a collar that they use at the end when they capture him. Oh yeah, that is yeah. the height of dramatic irony. Yeah, so That's beautiful. Yeah, yes. so so I mean, this is there's a bit of foreshadowing here, but also um, it says maybe something about about the nature of evil again, right? How evil is again self defeating, and and in its own attempt to create kingdom is just imprisons itself. You know what I mean? Like it's it has no sort of essence in and of itself. It's always kind of caught or yeah, self-defeating. Yeah, Sophia? In relation to that concept, you should get Josh to explain the fact that Morgoth made Arda his reign. Oh, Because yes. you weren't there for that. Say that again? The the entirety of Middle-earth is, is to Morgoth as the ring is to Sauron. He put his entire essence mm. woven all the way through it. Um... So it is in it's in the back of Morgoth's ring, which is which okay. is named after that concept. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I Although I don't have that. Yeah, the, I mean the difference would be Morgoth doesn't create Middle Earth, so he doesn't have this. It doesn't have the same evil. He only like Middle a, Earth doesn't become evil the way the ring is. He only has a part in the creation. That's why it's not holy. Yeah. 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 But in the same way, Sauron didn't create the gold of the ring. No, but the ring is evil. Right. It's not a neutral thing. But the ring is evil right. because Sauron's in it. Right, but Middle Earth is not evil because Morgoth is in it. Actually, Middle yes. Earth has evil because Morgoth but, is but in the, it. But the evil of Middle Earth, I wouldn't say, is the same evil as the ring. No. Well, Sa- I think Sauron's power in the ring is more concentrated. Yeah. Whereas Morgoth is disseminated throughout the entire of Arda. The, I mean, without Sauron, the ring of power is only a golden ring. Like, uh, like the ring is all is 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 merely is is a vessel of uh, no of no importance. Whereas the all of Arda is already kind of something before Morgoth ever tries to corrupt it. I was going to make just one small comment that it, the one the one thing about Valerian and like the rivers being kind of the main protagonist of Valerian and its realms is this is Arda Mard in literal sense. Right. Right. This is this is, you know, the land that this is showing that kind of corruption, uh, or at least part of partially, uh, kind of the, what, what you know, what has changed, where where evil has set in into Marta itself, and so which places are dangerous and which ones the elves have created as strongholds. Kind of. I, I, uh, I'd be cautious. You know, I, I think I think I think Middle Earth. Is still fundamentally good. I can read Morgoth's kind of ring next week and read. Yeah, the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or even on Tuesday. Yeah, on, right. Yeah, Tuesday. yeah. But I mean, if, he, if Tolkien does say that, I would say Tolkien's wrong. Tolkien's wrong about himself. Yeah, right. Um, would we be able to compromise and say that parts of Middle Earth have become evil? Um, in that, like, the ring was completely made. <coughs> Sorry, um, but. Middle Earth was only marred by Morgoth as much as he put his essence into it. But you do see evil parts of Middle Earth, such as Thangorodrim, I think I would I would feel comfortable calling 
Bengal itself, the eagle. Um, and there's also, epiphany, the mountain which keeps the fellowship from crossing over the Misty Mountains. Thank you, Seems to have a will, seems to be evil, in a sense. Um, yeah, but I mean, look at, so look at the, the, that one really great moment in the, in the Return of the King. It's in Mordor, which you would think would be the most evil place in Middle-earth, right? And yet there's that moment when Sam says something funny and Frodo laughs. And it's like the entire land is like leaning in to hear laughter that is not like, you know what I mean? Like almost as if the land itself is aware of its, of its imprisonment to Sauron. And this laughter is a moment of, you know what I mean? So during the, so, you know, so there's a, uh, so even Mordor as, as evil as Mordor is, it's still, I think, fundamentally a good place that has been corrupted, not evil to, to the core, so to speak, I guess. We're really off, we're really far afield here, so I don't know how long we want to we want to do this, but I'll just, everyone who has a hand up gets a shot, so Nick, and then Sophia, and then Sarah. Well, just like, yeah, well, just like, in support of sort of what you're saying, it's like, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, Casa Doom, you know, it was, you know, a, a great sort of home of the dwarves, it was not inherently evil, there was only it only became kind of evil and dark and foreboding once like Durin's bane was awoken once it, it exerted its influence and then and the goblins moved in it was it was you know as as you say corrupted it was not evil from the beginning it only became evil because of another for, another force acting on it mm-hmm. right Sophia um yeah I I mean first I want to point out something that's just interesting and off topic but like um or tangentially related which is the fact that like. Um, they're, like, the fact, the rivers are not actually part of the earth in this case. Like, the rivers are separated out. Because we're discussing whether or not, like, like, water is seen as an entirely different force from, like, earth in Arda. Um, because water has, like, a different sort of spirit to it. Um, like, you don't get the sense that, like, you know, because if we said something like, like, we're debating whether or not, like, you know, Arda is Morgoth's ring, for example, like, um, and then we're talking about, like, um, like, the, like, the physical matter of Arda, but one thing that's really interesting is that, like, when you talk about, like, physical Arda, like, the earth and the water are differentiated, I guess. Like, the rivers are, um, like, Morgoth hates water, right? Right. Like, water is Because always, of Uma, right? I think yeah. Mainly, yeah. But, like, the thing is, he can still corrupt the things that, like, he can still corrupt Owlay's earth. Right. But, like, but, Uma's water is different for some Yeah, it is, but remember the pools of Ithra, right? So they do get corrupted, right? Yeah, but they can be defiled. They can't be turned to his purpose. Ah, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, like yeah, you, right. you get an example of Morgoth using Earth to his own purposes. Yeah. You get an example of him defiling water the same way he can like kill something that's pure or suck the life out of the trees. You never get an example of him ever actually using water to his own purposes except right. by accident, mm-hmm. which is ice when he creates cold uh, right. um, to try and ruin things. But it actually just you know it makes ice and snow. He doesn't actually control those things. He just kind of made them by accident when yeah. he like made things cold. Yeah. Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah. Um, <laughs> I think when we're when we're talking oh, about um, 
talking about it. Like we talked, I think last week, or like whatever, like last time we met, about where the Valar are, are pulling their power from and why yeah. Morgoth weakens, right? Um, and so I think that's like the real relation there isn't um, Sauron made this ring and made it evil, and Morgoth corrupted the land and made it evil because he put himself into it. Like to a certain extent, is Morgoth manipulating the land? Yes. But I think it's more about the sense that um, the rest of the battle, like we talked about, are still connected to the song mm-hmm. and are still connected to the guitar and therefore are being renewed. Um, and Morgoth has poured his destructive energy into destroying the earth and now is tied up in it. Um, he can't regain that, just like Sauron can't pull himself out of the ring to make himself more whole. Um, and so Morgoth then is fractured in it and can only use it to as, to as much power as he can, right? Um, so he can... And because, yeah, he was not the sole creator of the Earth in the way that, that Sauron was the sole creator of the ring, it's not as powerful, and it's bigger and more widespread, but you can definitely see that he is working to try to turn the Earth to his purposes. He makes earthquakes and, um, and volcanoes, and like you kind of talked about them the earth as being impacted by the fall, right? Even the, even the stones and the mountains cry out and mm-hmm. grow under the weight of it. Okay. Josh? I would agree with pretty much all of that. And also, um, whether or not um, different parts of Middle-earth are evil or not, I would certainly say that there are certain regions that are more prone to becoming evil or in which evil is more likely to succeed. Just to sort of find the middle ground here. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> uh, can okay. I, can I comment on the water thing? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's not that it's not interesting, but... No, no. Um, I was actually planning on making a similar point, though there is one other um, thing um, to the west of Thangorjum lay Hizalome, the land of mist, mm-hmm. which, so, heat. See, Josh, thanks. Morgoth does use water, but he uses it, he steams it up first and sends it forth. So he, like, I think he, he, he like, uses heat and cold. He yeah, yeah, and that was, and in the, in the beginning, that's what, you know, um, uh, they make that comment that Omo had never thought of snow or steam, but that was kind of an, a weird mixing of what the kind of heat and cold that Morgoth had brought to the world. And I thought it was kind of interesting that the kind of a few places where kind of water is seen as a danger, the grinding ice and the kind of this mist, you know, this misty land that probably gets a Elves quite lost. Possibly why they can't, draw, you know, they can't draw it on a map. Um, but that would be, uh, you know, but the, you know, it's yeah, Morgoth has to can find sparing uses for water, but not very, you know, not not big ones. And he's all his creatures hate hate the water anyways. Normal water. I just love the irony that the only reason rivers exist is because of Morgoth, but through the bane of his existence. Because Ulmo never abandoned them, which right. I think is really important. You know, what if everybody else had stuck by their creation, would Morgoth have been able to, uh, to corrupt them? That's interesting. So, yeah. 
I, I just I don't think it's quite the same relationship um, between their respective creations and the valor as it is with Omo and water. Um, it's it's always seemed different, um, especially with um, Paolo. Like he from the very beginning, he seemed attached. He seemed to be working with an other thing, a form of it. Whereas with Omo, he seems to be somehow always connected. And I don't think that's just volition. I think that's somehow tied to the nature of both the substance and um, the Valar themselves. Um, and water just always does seem more as a whole, more as a unit, has more unity, naturally speaking, than rocks do, um, with other rocks, that is. So it's, I think it's just part of the nature of their very substances. Unless you're earth bender. <laughs> True. <laughs> There, there is no real like. There's no valor or earth. Well, he's a maker. But I, I was thinking because also it mentions um, with the of the, in the chapter of uh, of men uh, that like the elves, their bodies are made of earth, and I, I was so it brought to mind that perhaps in this sense, earth. Uh, in in Middle Earth is kind of uh, a more neutral, uh, you know. It's 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 the malleable substance of yeah, the create the subcreative, you know, substance of the world, and not so. It's it's you know, there's no real one creator of of it, and so you know, you you can't have an Omo of Earth in Tolkien's world. You can have Aule who make you know, who's kind of the primary maker of stuff from Earth, um, and... Well, I mean, not. I mean, I think maybe, maybe Ali and Yvanna combined would be sort of the Earth, you know, like, like, Yvanna makes things grow, right, out of the Earth. So that, there seems to be a tie to, with the two of them. But yeah, in terms of, uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's a direct sort of like, well, Umo is, equals water, and Manwe equals sky, and, you know, like, the way you have in other mythologies, water it seems there's a direct correlation between just seems a little more uh, not messy, but a little more complex with Tolkien, perhaps. Um, yeah, Nick. Just real quick, like uh, the only one of the Valor who sort of seemed to be kind of like a you know Earth mover is like because like you know Manwe and the Valor they raise up the mountains of Valinor kind of as a defense. But the, other than that, Melkor is the one who's kind of like you know hewing mountains into certain shapes and moving the earth to suit his purposes to kind of carve out his fortress. So. He's the only kind of direct, like, earth mover mm. in that sort of sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, a uh, couple, couple other things before we move on to the other two chapters. One is, again, we see right at the very beginning that the Valar have a really hard time tying up loose ends. Mm-hmm. And that causes lots of problems for them and for everybody else. Uh, so, yeah, they, you know, they didn't fully take out Dangorodrim, and so Morgoth is able to, to rebuild that happens again later in which situation? In the Second Age. Um, I was going to say, like, when they go fight the Necromancer of Dol Guldur, but, like, don't actually really do anything about him. He just, like, goes into Mordor. Right. Well, and that's the Third Age. Yeah. Oh, wrong so, age. Exactly. Yeah. Second Age, of course, well, is the Battle of the Last Alliance which is what our club is named after, right? When they actually go into Mordor and they take the ring and they 
tear down Varadur, but they don't destroy its foundations, mm. right? So that more, so that Sauron is able to to rebuild. Well, so and, that this is a common. Well, and like it doesn't say that like the two found like foundations of Varadur cannot be destroyed until the ring is destroyed. Right. Well, they have a chance. Yeah. Right. And they didn't take it. Yeah. Like when a silver so, doesn't want to, why doesn't Elrond right. just push him into the lava? He could have solved thousands of years. Yeah. Of well, I mean, that's that's, that's more that's more movie dramatic. I don't. I, yeah, it's hard to say. And I imagine I imagine it's similar to like free will, where mm. you can't just force someone to. Anyway, it's okay. The other way. thing is, uh, <laughs> um, what do you think this chapter sir What purpose does the chapter? serve sort of in the narrative i have an idea for me but i don't know if, yeah i feel like we're getting a lot of a lot of personality from the land i think we're supposed to feel attached to it before it's ripped away okay so so that's one thing for sure right and and tolkien has we talked about this in the second book study what was the context of this right how tolkien wants you to see the land as a character tolkien wants you to sort of be invested in the land which you don't see in, we talk about this where you like you don't see this in Game of Thrones, you don't see this in other, or I mean, Song of Ice and Fire, you don't see it in other fantasy narratives where, you know, the land is just sort of incidental to the, the story, whereas for Tolkien, it's essential to the story. <clears throat> yeah, Sarah? Yeah, so I think, I think that's part of it. I also think it's kind of um, setting, it's, it, it is partly just setting the stage, right? Mm-hmm. So part of it is like, we're now going to launch into war. Right. Um, where is everyone? Right. We've just given you a very large overview of a very large amount of history and like a bunch of things that people do. So you want to be able to visualize this, right? Yeah. You want to say, okay, so Morgoth is here. Morgoth is here, and Turgon right. is here, and you know, yeah. Fingal is here, and so that when you're setting it up, you can see. You can almost anticipate, right? You can almost look at it, look at it like a chess game and say, now if I were this person, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, where would Morgoth go from there? And you can see how that plays out later on. It makes it easy to visualize. And yeah, it does also creates a connection to the land okay. in the way that um, it's going to be used in the future. Okay. Uh, Jordan? Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say... I mean, following this, we get into, I mean, the, the, the narrative isn't really, uh, I mean, it is overviewish, but there's, in Tolkien's mind, there's kind of three, at least three major stories that happen, and they all happen in a time period where the land, the, the land is in a single state, and where, you know, kind of, there, there's a there's a certain status quo of Valerian, and I think we haven't we haven't had it established before, but we need it now. Because otherwise, you know, you'll just have Baron and Luthien running around places that you just don't know how to. Like, it's kind of Baron and Luthien and Turin and the fall of Gondolin. Like, they all happen within this kind of a very short amount of time in comparison to the rest of the Silmarillion so far. And so we almost need this kind of, okay, snapshot. This is the specific era we're dealing with going forward and that will influence most of the rest of the book from up until like the second age you know the, the second age good nick yeah it's uh it's interesting because you know you say like tokyo sort of wants us to be connected to the land and it's sort of it almost had the opposite effect on me where like a i just find long descriptions of like just the land and the forest
us boring. That's why I think the beginning chapters of the Fellowship aren't interesting. But B, I, I happen to think that it's sort of the, yes, I get the Landis character and it's very well fleshed out and I can certainly appreciate the beauty of it, but I think it's the people that make the land special, you know, because like Valerian becomes <coughs> sort of a, a, a kingdom when, you know, the Sindar kind of um, eke out their existence, all the various cities and kingdoms of the Noldor sort of thing. So I think it's sort of the people are more important in this case. And, mm. and it's just, um, I just find, you know, like long chapters of geographical descriptions I mean, I can certainly appreciate them, but I just don't appreciate them in the way that Tolkien probably wants me to, just mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't, I'm not obsessively in love with sort of forests that way. Right. Well, you need to change your mind. I'm just happy there's a map because I kept like reading and I'm like, wait, where is it on the map? And then we'll find right. the map. Like I couldn't, I couldn't follow exactly where everything was. I found it yeah. really, but I think it's just I can't read and spatially put stuff. I think it's just, I think it's just me. I don't think it's the book itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But well, I'm just like, happy there was a map. <laughs> and, right, in, right. and in most of the narrative chapters with characters and, and stories and that, like you know, with Return of the Noldor, where we like they start making some of the kingdoms, we get descriptions of the land. We see the land where they sort of where they, these people are making their homes. We don't need a, an entire chapter of just where places are. Well, yes. <laughs> I, 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 get that. I know it was the map that made it interesting for me because I could I could read the, like a paragraph and like okay, and then we'll see where it's on the map, right. and then I can make the connections and it made sense. I think yeah. it was just the thing by itself, as I said, it'd be just confusing for me. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the map actually was what makes it interesting. I think. Yeah. yeah. Sophia, Ryan, did you have something? Yeah, I do. Okay, Sophia. Um. So I. So like one of the articles that we had to read for ego criticism class was like discussing the idea of setting and the fact that we um, call the natural landscape in books setting and like the fact that we call the natural landscape in like in books setting um, like automatically puts it into a secondary role like you're calling it setting and so essentially you're saying like the natural landscape exists for the humans to be in it, right? It yes. is setting for the humans. Um, and additionally, it also like cited a review of, it wasn't Tolkien, but it could have been Tolkien, where like the person actually said like, this was bad writing because there's too much setting description versus this is good writing because there's not a lot of setting description. The focus is on the people. So like, even though some people find it boring. I think that, like, for Tolkien, the landscape is a lot more than setting. The landscape is its own person, and, um, like, the landscape is important, and specific natural features are also very important for their own value, um, which is a lot of what I see in Tolkien's writing and a lot of why, like, it's important to him to both lay out the geography and also describe specific natural features and their sort of like quasi-agency and right. like different differing personalities and also differing like fates right. within his narrative like I think it's important for him because he sees like aspects of the natural landscape as um, like characters essentially even if they don't have will the same way that the children believe to so in other words, and this would be a critique on the, the idea that the land is there for the sake of the people. Yeah. Right? The land is there. And Treebeard gets at this, right? Remember when, who, I don't know, who asked Treebeard, like, what side, whose side are you on? Mm. Right? And Treebeard says, well, I'm not on anyone's side because no one is on my side. Right? Treebeard is, is stating a kind of independence there for the land. Right? And I mean, Nate, for, 
Like uh, Aboriginals, First Nations people have had this view for mm -hmm. centuries, right? This idea that the land is the land in and of itself. It's not there for the sake of the people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so I like I like that how Tolkien already here is 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 at least suggesting some of that kind of stuff. Um, the other thing, and then we'll move on because we've already given this a lot of time, which is great. Um, in terms of the purpose of the chapter and it coming here, so obviously there's there's a reason for it. It fits sort of with the narrative, but also I find, what I like about this chapter is it's like we've just had all of this sort of really kind of emotional, just um, overwhelming of you know, like kin slang and and you know it's almost like it's almost like you need a break. Right before you jump launch into all the the rest of which is also going to be a whole lot, right? And so it's almost like for me when I read it, it's like okay, I can just pause and I can go for a walk. You know what I mean? And and walk around and then because now right at, and it's interesting even with the in the return of the Noldor, which we're going to get to, um, it's like the oath of Fanor seems to have at least for a moment slid into the back. Right, like it's in, like everyone in general. Okay, there's a little bit of trouble in general. People are getting along. There's no mention of the Silmarils, right? There's, there doesn't seem to be any uh, mention of the Sons of Fanor and their desire to get them. In you know what I mean? So it's almost like Tolkien's giving us a bit of a break, like the calm before the storm kind of thing, right? And so I like that narratively how that you know that comes at this moment. Yeah, Danielle. So it's interesting that you say everyone's getting along, but yet there's so much division. Oh yeah, like, like, like it's not think, a perfect me, harmony. For, yeah, for me that was so interesting about this text is like is is going through and and you know and it's, it's describing each area but saying who is in each area and what they're doing. Right. I found really interesting. And again, the, again, I keep going back to the map because the map really intrigued me <laughs> the whole time. But like it has like you know who lives where in the red, right? Who's yeah. which people are where where the leaders are, and and and, and it's, it, for me just it was interesting to see how how chopped up the the place is and right. how. How even though it's the land and the people there, it's the people who live on it have named it, have divided it, and it's kind of like when you think of colonization in Africa, right? They mm. split it on like, all these lines that are kind of arbitrary in many ways. Right. And so it's interesting to see how how people choose to divide land and and how that can create strife in many ways. Right. As well. But there's not like they're not all divided against each other. No, right? that's like true. Finrod and Turgon, you know what I mean? But the other thing, like What's interesting is there is a moment where they were about to come to blows, right? Yeah. When Fingolfin returns and they, they're, they're ticked off because of the burning of the ship, they abandon them. Normally, from everything we've read up to this point, there would be a battle. Yeah. But in this case, there isn't. They're able in this moment to say, hey, let's not do, you know what I mean? So again, it's like a, just a bit of a breath of, of relief for a moment before you know, we get back into the heavy, which we will, right? So I like I like that narratively how it's a kind of calming effect. There's no mention of the old, there's no mention of the Silmarils, no one going after them, there's no talk of, you know what I mean? Like, it's just a kind of calming, but not without conflict, yeah. strife in some way, but yeah. not armed conflict anyway, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Matthew, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I, I guess we kind of went past it, but I was just going to, just on the, on the divisions, it's interesting that, um, there's kind of a difference between the divisions between like Fingolfin and Fingon and Turgon and then with the sons of Feanor. 
how there's there's a more significant division there just as opposed to where people are kind of setting up. Oh yeah. Um, and geographical, right. like if there's if there's any kind of an, an actual division, um, it's between everybody else and the sons of Baal. Right. And the other thing, the last thing is, except for what some music no, is saying, okay. is, and this is again unrelated, but to remember how few people there actually are here. Right? Like I think the, for the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, is the army num maybe numbered, was it the number 10,000 for the Battle of Unnumbered Tears? Or the one before that? I don't know. But anyway, the point is, you can walk for days and probably even weeks through Valerian and not see a single person. Right, like it's it's an em almost an empty land, right? Which also is is, is kind of interesting. Right? Um, okay, so just for those of you who show up late, we started with Valerian and its rocks because we wanted to give it its due. So now we're going to go to of men, which means that we might not be able to give the other chapters all the due, but that's okay because you know what? You're going to be doing the Silmarillion in three years again, and you can come back to. And now Joseph. Has to leave. Yeah. Okay, uh, of men, yeah, we talked about that very first line. The Valor sat now behind their mountains at peace. They're at peace because they're behind the mountains, right? So right away it starts off as, to me anyway, that this is a bit problematic, right? That they've separated themselves. Um, having given light to Middle-earth, they left it for long untended, uh, except for Umbo. Uh, okay, and then uh, we have the awakening of, of men. I love the list of names that they're given. <laughs> right? The Atani they were, named by the elder, the second people. But they called them also Hildor, the followers, and many other names. Apanonar, the afterborn, Engwar, the sickly, and Firamar, the mortals. And they named them usurpers, the strangers, the inscrutable, the self-cursed. The heavy-handed, the night-fearers, the children of the sun. <laughs> yeah, Sophia? Um, it's interesting because you see, like, little hints of stuff later. Like, um, he mentions that they're called the strangers, but the explanation for that doesn't actually show up except in the debate between Fingron right. and Andrew. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, yes. ages later explains like why they're called the strangers because yes. like it seems like they're not of this world because they're always like searching for some kind of something like or like some kind of spirituality like outside of the world yeah it's like where that comes from or also like the self curse yes. was really interesting because i was trying to figure out what that referred to and the only thing i came up with was the debate between <laughs> yeah, and yes. again. So, so, true. so like yeah. Yeah. except that that also like if he did have that in mind, he must have changed something because the debate does specifically say that the humans won't tell any elves that story, so the elves right. wouldn't be able to call themselves cursed because of it. Because there are, I think there story. are hints of it when we get to Bjor, right? When he right. talks about the darkness that lies behind them. Yeah. I think maybe there's a whatever we make of that. Uh, yeah, Sarah and then Matthew. I just find it funny that like you can immediately see what the Mildor were talking about coming true. And it's right. not the human's fault. Right. Like, it's the fault of the Eldar. Yes. So literally they show up and they're like, you are here. We didn't want you here. Right. <laughs> and starts calling them names and like like mocking ones too. Like yeah. some of them are some of them are relatively normal. Oh yeah, the second born. Or like children of the sun, that's a reasonable That's a awesome name. But then you get like 
The sickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The heavy handed. The night here. They're just like, oh. don't like you. Yeah. The sickly, at least, this might be not too bad because elves can't get sick. You know, sickness would be an entirely new concept to them. Like, why, why are they very like, complimentary? <laughs> yeah. no, but it might not be disparaging. You know what I mean? Like, like, but you're right. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be complimentary. Those people with a weakness. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that can yeah. grow yeah. old. Yeah. They, they might not necessarily be like looking down on that. Like, oh, they're 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 sickly. But because there's a lot of emphasis that we find, they find sometimes that too that the it, it, it gives the elves grief to watch how men just like. You know, generation after generation, they just they die, right? And they fall right. sick, and they do get ill. And if they make friends among humans, they just disappear, yeah. right? So it can be kind of a it could be kind of a title of, um, I guess, confusion and, and, and almost grief. Um, but I was gonna say though too is that I like how it's it's like a list of titles, but you get a whole anthropology out mm-hmm. of it, so, right? Which is really interesting, right? And yeah, um, and especially with titles like. Uh, Yes, for another hour. Sickly and, and mortals and stuff like that. You get sort of, if you're looking at like at elves outside of this sort of this paradisal state of, of humankind too, which you can kind of sometimes view elves at, and then you have their perspective on um, the the aftercomers in, in this. It's it's really kind of an interesting um, anthropology, I guess, that's going on there. Yeah, my favorite is the inscrutable. Yes, <laughs> love that. Yeah, yeah, Jordan. What does heavy-handed refer to? I don't know, it's just like in, in, in normal, like in normal, like Tolkien circles, you'd almost think that would be a name for the dwarves because of their smithing. But uh, you know, or like, I'm just like, is it that that humans are always wanting to do stuff before they die? They always want like that's my first thought, but. It's like that's the one thing that comes to my mind, but I yeah. it, it just you know, it, oh, but that's a good it, question. It's, a, it's just it's an interesting one, and I want and I'd like to know what exactly the reason is right. for that. Yeah, Sophia. Well, my first thought is just that there's so much focus on saying that like the Eldar are the most skilled in crafts and in the making of fine things. So like. Humans embroider and humans forge, but they don't make things that are as delicate as the mm-hmm. things that the dwarves make and that the elves make, and that you never get a single instance of humans making something of like incredibly delicate beauty, like really intricate, like the gates of Moria or like the Nauvoo, whatever. Or they keep trying, but it breaks. Yeah. And they're like, oh, they're so heavy. Or they just, well, they probably, I mean, they also don't <laughs> have the years needed to. S- get their skills yeah. up to yeah, right. um, I actually wanted to point out though just yeah. that even if we don't take the sickly as insulting, the heavy handed and the usurpers are still Yes, for sure though. Those two for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Even the night fears can be a little bit uh that made me like sick of you. Okay, yeah, Sarah and then Matthew. Yeah, like that's I was gonna say that, right? Like everything that humans make is utilitarian. Mm. Um it works kills people or builds things or whatever it's supposed to do, but it's not beautiful the way that the elves can make things or the way that um, that dwarves can make things. Um, and also humans don't have the same appreciation for nature that the elves do, so they tend to walk all over it, um, which the elves would be annoyed by. The other thing I thought of was that like 
because humans are always in a hurry to do things, they're probably not as diplomatic as the elves, but by then you can look close up the fan or right. people in Los Angeles shouldn't throw stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, when you, yeah, well, I mean, when you think of the the exchange between Baron and Thingol, you can see mm-hmm. there's a little heavy handedness, but although that's maybe more on Thingol than on Baron, but. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Matthew? Uh, yeah, I guess I was I was gonna cut out the second kind of the second part of what you said, right? If you call something heavy handed, you can like it's an over application of force. Right. It can be too. Um Turing which sure. yeah, mm-hmm. that's kind of thinking of Turing too. Um the elves, there are exceptions, but their their instinct kind of seems to be to preservation. Um mm-hmm. which is a bit different than sometimes like Turin or Boromir too, right? To draw an example from the Lord of the Rings, they sometimes have that than the elves. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna keep pressing ahead here to try at least to get into uh, Return of Nowhere too. Uh, okay, so the next thing that I highlighted here was uh, enough men right to to Hildorian. There came no Vala to guide men or to some of them to dwell in Valinor, and men have feared the Valar rather than loved them and have not understood the purposes of the powers being at variance with them and at strife with the world. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I uh, of course, with, with Andreth again, we get, or with the uh, after, after Beth, we get some insight into this, right? Uh, when we hear the story of, what's her name again that tells the story? It starts with an H, but I don't remember who. But anyway, about how Luvatar actually comes to them directly. In, in that story. Is uh, that Adenau? Oh yeah, Adenau, right, Adenau. Uh, and then Morgoth twists that, right, or twists that visit. So, but the strife with the world is an interesting line there, right, which I think ties again to how they are not of the world the way the elves are of the world, right? Uh, so there's probably some play going on there. Uh, okay, uh, and then... Um, the last thing here I think we should talk about is uh, the bottom of the second page of the chapter. Uh, what may befall their spirits after death, the elves know not. Some say that they too, they too go to the halls of Mandos, but their place of waiting there is not that of the elves, and Mandos, under Iluvatar alone, save Manwe, knows whither they go after the time of recollection in those silent halls beside the outer sea. None have ever come back from the mansions of the dead, save only Baron, son of Barahir, spoiler, whose hand had touched the Simoreau, but he never spoke afterward to mortal men. The fate of men after death, maybe, is not in the hands of the Valar, nor was all foretold in the music of the Einhorn. Yes, Sarah? So, like, we don't know things, and that's typical. Um, what, what I find really funny is sometimes the way that Tolkien structures things, like, he thought of one exception, then he thought of other exceptions afterwards. Oh. Right? Like, Mandos under Lubitar alone, save Manwe. Like, why wouldn't you just say Mandos and Manwe alone? Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Right? Like, the three of them, they're the only one. But no, you have to say Mandos under Lubitar alone, save Manwe. Yeah. Right. Manwe's after I think maybe yeah. no one knows. Because he knows everything. But like, right. Yeah. yeah. So I was just amused by the, like, the sentence structure. Also, like, kind of makes sense that no one knows where the elves go, or where the men go. Um, because, like, I feel like Tolkien wanted to leave that open as, like, his connection to something grander. 
right? right? Um, yeah. And I feel like they were trapped in, in the world the same way the elves are trapped in the world um, in Mandos. Like, he cuts off his connection with a bigger uh, mythology that he's thinking about. Yeah. Right? Because he, he traps you back down in the realm of the Valar instead of maintaining that connection to a Luatar in, in grand scheme of, of properties. Um, and I think that leaving it open that men have something else that people don't right. really know and can't really identify um, leaves that connection open. Well, I mean, we also run into the problem of chronology versus the date when he wrote writes stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, because, like, when you get to the afterbeth, you really get the sense that Tolkien sees this um, this gift of death, or the fact that that men are not tied to Arda the way the elves are tied to Arda, as the key means by which Arda will be unmarred, right? So men have a kind of redemptive function that's rooted in the fact that they are not connected the way the elves are connected. And I always wonder, like, when he's writing this kind of stuff, is, is that already in his mind that he's slowly developing it? Like, when you know what I mean? How much of how much does Tolkien know? of the mythology, because we just can't, we just don't know the way Christopher decides to put it all together, right? So that's again where reading the entire history of Middle-earth would be would be lots of fun, although also very time-consuming. Uh, Danielle? Um, do we, just a question really, do we ever figure out what happens to dwarves or other various races of the... No, of or the, hobbits for that Yeah, matter. also hobbits or any of them, so we just, we just don't know about any of them. Yeah, well dwarves, dwarves have their own mythology that's in a valley in Givana, right? Is that that they go back to? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, keeps a place aside for them in the whole matters or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so then they're the, going to help rebuild Arda. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't remember where that came up again. But So the dwarves have their own idea of what happens to them. Mm-hmm. We never hear anything yes. about what the hobbits yeah. think. No. Are hobbits technically a, their own thing? They are. I mean, they're closest to men, but I do think they're their own thing. Because, yeah. yeah, we talked about how they're kind of amalgamated features of all the other races combined into them. Yeah. So. Uh, and then, of course, the very last line, and in the glory and beauty of the elves, and in their faith, full share had the offspring of Elfimordo, Arendo, and Elwing, and Elrond, their child. So, for those of us who are nerds, we're like, Elrond, what? Yeah. He mentions, first mention. The coolest thing about this entire book is just the connections between people. It's like, oh, yeah. Elrond's father is this guy, and this guy is the grandfather. You know, just that right. connection between people. Yeah, it's really cool. So there's no need to talk about Elrond. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk about the end of Fanor. Yes. Going out like a boss. Ryan, did you have something? Sure. To start us off? Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> I'll Good. start us off. So. Nick, you said at the beginning that you thought this was an epic, glorious death. Um, I now have to play the Jedi to your sin. <laughs> this, I thought um, this was ridiculous. What the heck is wrong with Vicar Right. Yeah. It's entirely motivated by selfishness, arrogance, right. and uh, ambition. Well, and the key word is fey, yeah. right? Yes. And we hear that again with Fingolfin, right, later, right? <clears throat> fey is a kind of, I mean, those of you who know the language better than me, but fey is a kind of madness, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, he, this is not a good uh, thing here, right? Yeah, Nick? Well, and it's, it's really cool because 
Feanor as a character is really interesting just because you see this person who sort of begins and spends the majority better part of his life being sort of at the top like he's you know he's called like the greatest kind of craftsman of the of the LR there are never any there's never anyone like him born after he dies um, you know he's a great individual but we really throughout this the, these chapters we see kind of his fall into madness and just this sort of you know this kind of almost like Shakespearean just like he, he goes to such heights only to fall so low and it's really fascinating and this is just the culmination of that where he's just he's so insane that you know, a he burns the ships and leaves his you know erstwhile allies back on, on the other side of the ocean, and he's just so consumed with like rage and jealousy that he just ultimately sacrifices himself on a pointless foolish quest, and it's just and it's just it's entirely fitting given how his narrative has been going. Is there a poetic justice to the fact that he's killed by spirits of fire? Yes. yes. There's definitely a connection considering <laughs> all the fire metaphors. Yeah, I think it's super interesting that um, despite, like, his, his body crumbles to ash after he dies, but it's not because he was wounded by Balrogs, it's because his own spirit was so fiery that yeah. his body, like, it just burned up his body as he died. Yeah. Um, so that's actually super interesting. He also, his spirit has never, neither has his spirit left the Hall of Mandos. And that's so wonderfully ambiguous, yeah. right? Whether it didn't leave because he chose not to be reincarnated, or it didn't leave because he was forbidden. It might be, be a combination. It might be a combination of the two, is, right? Uh, yeah, Sarah. He was forbidden. Fedor has no stop. Um, <laughs> so, like, I feel like if Fedor had been allowed, he would have been out of there in a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you and like back right at that, right at Melkor's right. throat as soon as he could be. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it's Mandos. Mandos is like, you have to chill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Because, yeah, you wonder if he gets to Mandos. Like, because it's hard to know. Like, Mandos is, in, in Catholic theology, we're talking about purgatory, right? Mm -hmm. So you wonder, and I don't want to get too deep into what people can think or know, but I'm sort of like, so he's in Mandos. Is he still, like, is he still thinking of the oath? Or does, does death actually have some kind of appeasing factor where once you are in Mandos, in fact, you are less inclined to the evil nature. I, you know what I mean? Or, or to that. And I, I mean, I, I, maybe that's too big of a question in the time we have, but uh, I'm going to let uh, Robert go. Because we don't hear how to from Robert. Um, didn't they explain, I don't remember when we were going over this, I think maybe Josh was going over it, um, that they changed the rules for reincarnation after the uh, the one elf chose to die and didn't want to come back. Yeah, Josh went over that when Rick wasn't here. So that's in Morgoth's ring again. Yeah. Can elves even be reincarnate after net after unnatural death now? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. No, no, the the only issue with that was that Finway and Mir was the issue of marriage and remarriage. Right. So the only reason why, um, like, elves can like elves are only allowed to marry once. So the only reason like reincarnation was an issue didn't have anything to do with how they died. It had to do with whether or not like their spouse was still like in the real world and married to someone else. So like, essentially, the rule they passed was like, um, it was like if you die, um, and you say that you're not like going to come back 
like you can if you say that you're not going to come back you basically get like a year where you can reconsider that decision at the end and at the end of that year you actually cannot come back because like at that point your spouse is allowed to remarry mm-hmm. because if like Finway had married Indus and then Muriel had come back he would have been married to both of them and that would have been unacceptable mm-hmm. um and so he was only allowed to marry Indus because Muriel was like, no, I'm never coming back. Um, except then, Finway died shortly after. He was killed by Morgoth, right? Um, and Finway was actually like, hey, Muriel, do you want to go back? Because, like, I could stay here. <laughs> and Muriel's like, okay. Um, so Finway actually chooses to stay instead in the Hall of Mandos and not come back. And so Muriel's able to because they won't be, like, in the walls at the same time, so it's not going to be an issue. So, like, Muriel goes back and then, like, basically hangs out in the halls of Vire and, like, weaves tapestries and is like, I'm going to wait for my son to die and show up and chew him out. <laughs> yeah, and part of the problem, too, is the fact that, with the exception of the Orphandale, which is an ambiguous exception, mm. right, we don't actually have any elves come back. You know what I mean? So... To- Valerian, like they come back in Arn Valinor, right? Right to yeah, yeah. to Middle Earth or to Ar- or to, to Middle Earth or Valerian, right? Yeah. So we don't we don't really have any examples to kind of say, oh, but what that what would that be like? And the only right? other kind of reincarnation in the in the true like that the kind of true sense of that is is Baron, you know, when when he comes back. But like other than that, it's like that that that's like yeah. a but of course Baron is, yeah. is that's a totally different. Yes, a man, so thing, yeah. totally different rules, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, because like. Um, they do, like, like, the, the issue is that, like, their body dies right. in, like, Middle-earth, um, and then their spirit goes to the Hall of Mandos, and then they can essentially, like, get their body back healthy again, like, in Valinor. Yeah. It's just Glorfindel is the only one we know about who, after that happens, has come from Valinor back to right. Middle-earth. Everyone else has just stayed in Valinor, right. mm. like Muriel, for right. example. Who yeah. like headed off to the halls of Vire? Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so is Glorfindel the exception to the rule, or is that something that all elves have the option, but only the Orphindel? He's the only one crazy enough to yeah. go back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. The other thing. Wrong last time. What could go wrong? Is <laughs> <laughs> the young, um, the young hot head? Vayner has one last chance at redemption, and he doesn't. And he doesn't take it. Did you get this? Yeah. Yep. Right? He has this moment of foreknowledge in his death where he sees that uh, the power of the Noldor, no power of the Noldor would overthrow them. And so he has this opportunity, I think, to say, hey, don't do it. Right? But he doesn't. He says, no, curse more Morgoth. And he says, you've got to keep the oath. Keep the oath. Right? Yeah, Sophia? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that, and he laid it upon his sons to hold their oath yeah. and to avenge their father. Which implies that he could have, in his dying moments, released them right. from the oath, which would have been his redemption. Right. But he doesn't because yeah. he's a shit person. Right, and in, in fact, fact yeah. not only does he tell them to hold their oath, but now he adds something. Avenging your father. Right? So, I mean, this is a guy who uh, just cannot uh, let well, go. When he decides to do something, he commits like no one's business. Like, he's yeah. not even gonna. Yeah, which <laughs> is a problem. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, Jordan. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Danielle? This is fine. No, someone else had a hand up. Yeah. 
Well, it doesn't matter. You get Daniel Yuko. No, I was going to say, I just, I had no sympathy or pain or whatsoever, and I didn't really care if he died. I was like, there's the next part when, is it Maithros, or how do you say that? Maithros. I was just feeling really bad for him. Yeah. Like, and then yes. it like, has this, like, well, I guess torture changes you a lot, but, uh, yeah. but like, he has Prison this turnaround around and, like, everything on, and he, like, kind of, like, starts for forgiveness, and they're like, man, you're an okay dude. I feel really bad that you have to keep this oath up. Yep. So, I just, I had, I, had, I was like, oh, good, pain is gone, that's good. That's where like, it that was my only feeling. I had no right. feeling to pain. That, that's where it gets particularly tragic. Yeah, yeah Jordan? Uh, just... On the whole uh, Bayonor and Mandos thing, I'd like to believe that Mandos gave him, like, a condition that Bayonor just doesn't accept. Like, yeah, you know, just give up the oath and you go out. Nope, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And so it's, a, it's, a, like, yeah. it's just a stalemate. Um, but on the, let's go to uh, Mandos. Uh, the, the whole, um, let, let's parley with Morgoth, and they both come with two, with bigger armies than they said they would. Right. <laughs> I find that incredibly comedic. Just yeah. like, oh yeah, we brought you know a thousand of us. Oh yeah, I brought five thousand. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> just I, I think that's yeah very fun. just a, just a comedy of errors all around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sophia. Can I just like jump ahead? Yep. I really like. Um, Mithros and Fingon. Yeah. I like how Fingon, like, I think he's, I think him and Luthien are the only people who actually succeed in, like, like, going alone to a stronghold of the enemy and actually rescuing someone. Nope, there's one more example. That like, nope. Sam. Okay, I meant in this the Zelda. Oh, but this <laughs> is a this is a, this is a foreshadow, right? This is Sam and Frodo, right? The same yeah. thing. Right? Yeah. I think we're supposed to hear that, right? The singing and the right Sam hears Frodo singing and he goes up and finds him. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, that was a very cheap shot. But. <laughs> I meant in this one book yeah. that we're talking about, but okay. <laughs> but yes, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, Ben like, does do a pretty big rescue of, of Turin, but it doesn't end as well as this does. That's true. <laughs> yeah. For Ben. Like, like, is on the way, like, it's in the forest. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right. it's not actually... That's right, true. that's true. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Sarah? Also, so, like, the thing that I find most interesting about this is that, um, Fingon, it takes someone else, it, it takes Monway's eagles, right? to stop Fingon from following through. Most of the time when you have a heroic character in that position where right, the one guy's just like, there's no hope, just kill me. The other guy's like, no, there is hope. There must be hope, I will save you. Um, Fingon's like, there is no hope, I will kill you. Right. <laughs> and then like, only saves him. Um, well, and that, and that, that shows just how desperate the situation is, right? In yeah. fact, there is no, like, where, like, death is actually a preferable option. Yeah. But it's, it's definitely a, a different take on it. And also, yeah. just the fact that Manway's like, nope. <laughs> right. Well, this is interesting, too. I see Matthew's hand, too, right? Like, because we talk about how, especially in The Lord of the Rings, how little religion there is, mm-hmm. right? Except for that moment where Faramir, they, they have some reflection before they eat. Here, the language is so, like, he prays to Manwe, and Manwe hears and responds, right? This very kind of religious language going on here. Yeah, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of part I find most interesting. And also that they sing a song of, like, Balamor, when they're both under yeah. this 
I mean, they've just deserted Valinor. They're under this doom, and well, one of them's under this oath. It's not exactly what you would expect, right? It seems like that would be kind of... I don't know. you got to think that there's something weird going on with, with, with their conscience doing something like that. Um, but I, I find it really interesting that they sing a song from Valinor, and then, and then, it's, it's, and then of course, the prayer to Manway as well. One of the things, too, that I think is really interesting here to tie this to the Lord of the Rings is you get kind of an explanation of the significance of the eagles. Yeah. What they're kind of always doing, which is, I mean, it's not, it's kind of obvious, but it's also, because I think sometimes we think of them as just birds or just um, handy to the plot or all these different things, but there is really something, I mean, it's, it's highly religious, but there's something, there's something significant going on there every time the eagles show up. Yeah, and I think the eagles in the Silmarillion are much more good, yeah. on the side of good, than they are in the, yes. when we get meet them in the Lord of the Rings, and especially the Hobbit. Yeah, with the with, Hobbit, they're much the more Hobbit. sort of yeah. you want to be neutral good. I don't know. What the, the, the Lord of the Rings, you kind of you kind of get it more similar to the Silmarillion yeah. sense, which right. is, makes sense, right? Because yeah. the Lord of the Rings kind of ties the Hobbit and the Silmarillion together, so yeah. you have kind of two divergent yeah. stories, but or at least this one eagle. Yeah, because it's the same one all the time that comes and does stuff in the Silmarillion. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, to kind of like connect that almost. Um, I actually think finding out that the eagles are the eagles of Manway adds more weight and more understanding to the eagles in The Hobbit. Because the first time I read The Hobbit, The Hobbit is so black and white, right? And especially when you're reading it with kids, then you're like, so are the eagles saving them? Are they helping them or are they not? Like, what's going on? Why do they have to talk about it? Like, yeah. why are they afraid of the eagles? When you find out that the eagles are the eagles of Manwe, you're like, that would be terrifying in and of itself, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, that makes sense. And it also makes sense that, like, because to a certain extent, the quest to, like, get rid of smog isn't a wholly pure one, right? right. It's not like Frodo taking the ring to Mordor, um, which is, in its essence, about cleansing yeah. the land, the quest of the Lonely Mountain has this element of greed right. um, attached to the questing. Not, it's not just about getting rid of smog. Right. Um, it's about obtaining something, um, and so I think that it makes sense because now these are eagles with colossal responsibility, right? They're they're overlooking the earth. They're they belong to Manwe, who's got this colossal responsibility. And so, what do they do with this group of people? They might achieve great things, but also, like, this quest could end in disaster, right? Especially if Thorin succumbs to dragon sickness. So, it makes more sense to me, knowing that the eagles are the eagles of Manway when you read The Hobbit, because okay. you're like, oh yeah, because they're so firmly aligned with good, that, like, Thorin and his company are too, um, too great. Right. Um... Continuing on a similar but slightly different thing on the religiousness of this scene, um, I'm amazed at how close um, Tolkien is coming to this concept of euthanasia and assisted suicide. Um, that's not necessarily, but often is a very religious topic, um, and like it wouldn't—it's not necessary to the story. Like he could have avoided that in the scene. He could have just been like, "Oh." Fingon is like, oh, I can't climb, I'm going to pray already, and then rescue, um, without 
having this need of this dialogue between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I'm very glad that Tolkien did what he did, because otherwise I'd be like, that really doesn't fit with the rest of your mythology if um, Fingon did just end Mindross. That'd be interesting, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to know what's going on in Tolkien's mind, that he would purposely put this fairly controversial issue in there. And that was in that was with Muriel too. Right. Were you not there that week? Is that the week you were there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Have we talked about like suicide? No, that, that, that's that was suicide proper as opposed mm-hmm. to it's just the two of them contributing. Yeah. Ah, okay, fair enough. Um yeah, two things. I just really, really like this rescue because it's just like um there's, there's that note of, like, like it works out so well because Fingon and Maedhros are both trying for reconciliation, even though neither one of them, like, knows it. Yeah. So, like, it, it works out. It's just this, like, cosmic karma thing <laughs> um, where, like, it works out so well for them because Maedhros was, like... Like, Maedhros actually, like, spoke up and tried to be like, hey, Dad, don't burn the ships. <laughs> like, what about our friends? Yeah. And Fingon, like, even though he doesn't know that, is like, yeah, no, like, Maedhros is my friend, and I'm going to go rescue him. But, it, like, then he finds out later that they were both actually, you know, trying to trying to compromise. And, like, I think that is very, like, very, like, very important as to why this is, like, allowed to succeed as well as it does, is the fact that they're both trying to reconcile, like, really, really hard. Um, and also just, like, throw back to, um, uh, throw back to that, uh, the chapter of Nerdanel where it's, like, some of Feanor and Nerdanel's sons got, like, part of Nerdanel's temperament, but not all of them. And, yeah. like, you just, like, you see that so clearly right. in this chapter, where, like, Mithras is actually, like, making good decisions yeah. and trying to contain his, like, brothers and stuff. Um, yeah. And, okay, second comment. On a much much less serious note, like, as a harpist, I think it's hilarious how, like, uh, Fingon just, like, whips out his harp, like, in the middle of this mountain and, yeah. like, starts singing. Like, ah, oh, yes, yeah, so when I go adventuring, like, I, too, bring my harp along when I'm going to go, like... Well, I mean, and maybe, yeah, it's like, and maybe the fact that, that he whips it out and plays <laughs> in the middle of this sheds light on what happens to Thorin's harp in the Hobbit, right? Which is never addressed, right? All the musical instruments that they bring to the party seem to disappear after the party, right? But maybe they didn't. Maybe he just put it back in his bag. And, they yeah. just carry it. Yeah. yeah. They they're, they're, they're what, their vials as big as themselves or something? Yeah. Like, Keely and Keely have violas as big as themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Nick. Yeah, just going back to like the whole yeah, like because um, like I think Sophia, you were talking about like this chapter's cool because we get characterizations for the sons of Fainro, which is really cool. Because like or, yeah, sir, um, like because like yeah, before they're just a group of the sons of Fainro, they're not individuals, but like here we're sort of seeing that they have personalities, and yeah. even though most of them are complete assholes, we see that Mythos is a decent individual who tries to make things better, which makes like the oath and then Fainor's final words particularly tragic because. If all of the, his sons were complete, you know, like unredeemable assholes, it wouldn't be sort of as tragic because oh, it's just we would expect these guys to kind of fall or do dickish things to the other elves. But it's because that there there is at least one or there are some within Fanor's faction where decent people 
they, who are who have been doomed by Fanfare's words. That is when the tragedy comes in, and that's a really kind of brilliant characterization on Tolkien's part because we actually care about Mithras in this chapter, and it's like we feel all the more sorry because he is a decent person trapped in this cycle of doom. Well, what I find, what I find, yeah, sir, go ahead. That's okay. I was just going to say, Sophia and I were reading this at the same time on the bus, and I was, and Mithras gives up, tries to give, give up, gives up the kingship yeah. in Bolton, and they're like, but some of the sons of Fae aren't happy with that, and I was like, Kelleborn was a piece right. of yeah. Scurrifin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. What I find so fascinating, there's a couple things, oh, there's, a, okay, so, you have this, this is one of those uh, free will issues in this chapter, right? Because, yes, of course, the problem is the oath is at play. But there's something else at play, right? It's the doom of Mandos. And what was the doom of Mandos? Right? That that they wouldn't get along, right? Yeah, and so here you have, like, like these real, to me, genuine attempts at reconciliation that are, in an important sense, doomed to fail because of man, the doom, right? And I'm sort of like, how is that fair? You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're, here they are actually making the attempt, right? And yet we know because of the doom that it's not, it's not going to work. And you're like, really? Like, can't, is there no way out of that? And there isn't, I guess, in some way. But then I'm like, ah, where's the justice in that? Uh, Matt and then Sophia. Well, um, I'm trying to find exactly where the Doom of Mandos is again, but you get the sense too that it's more of a prediction, and every time those attempts at reconciliation fail and they're just divided, it's there's there's never any 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 indication that it's not because of their like free will mm. choices and stuff. Right. Too. Well, yeah, that's that's like point. when I can't remember which which of them it is. Maybe it's Krufin. I, opens his mouth up about. Um, Thingle and who went to see Thingle again? Oh, that's Karanthir. Karanthir, yeah, and and um, I mean he's the one who did that, and all those divisions are caused by things that they say. Well, that's a good point. In wrath, that's a good right? Point. So I get the sense too that the, the doom of doom of Manos is it's like you you guys are you guys are going about this entirely wrong. Yeah. And as a result, you're not going to be able to control yourselves and work together. It's going to be a disaster. Because um, yeah. of foresight, it's not necessarily that he's like, "I am saying this, and as a result, you will be fated not to, mm. not to do that." It's more like it's just a foresight. But it takes such a good storyteller to get you so close to the reconciliation and then take it away all the time. Like it's just, yeah, Sophia. Um, I agree with Matt, but like, there is. But it's like Turin, where it's like so right. hard to tell whether yeah. it's decisions or the curse, because in many ways it's both. Right. Mm-hmm. Because like one of the most significant things here is the fact that like Manwe, like a Vala, actually has pity on Fingon, right. yeah. and so like I think that they're, I think that like the Mithras and Fingon thing actually succeeds. Like I think that yeah. actually succeeds in reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, first of all, the pity of Avala helps it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, because both of their intentions are so pure, like, mm. 
yeah. Fangon goes to rescue Magos in like the most selfless way possible, and then Magos, when he comes back, like begs forgiveness for deserting them, gives up the kingship to Fingolfin, also apparently gives them a bunch of horses, and then like right. remains lifelong friends like yeah. with them. So I think like <clears throat> that actually like succeeds and has an impact. It's just like the curse is still in place because unfortunately Magros and Meglor are not the only sons of Feanor. Right. So like you see the fact that so like so like again, um is it the curse or is it just the decisions of Caranthir, Kelegorm, and Kurufin that totally fuck them up? Because right. I like I would argue that Magros actually does succeed in healing the divide. Mm, yeah. It's just that he can't do it very well because his brothers don't all agree with him. Right. And yeah, even with point. that, like he still does really well where he like, you know, he goes off way into the east and kind right. of puts the troublemakers even farther right. yes. east. Yeah. So like he right, like like he does all of these things to like keep them on good terms with like Fingolfin and Finarfin. It's just like you still see later on that Mithros and Maglor are the only ones who go to the Feast of Reconciliation right. and the only ones who keep ties. So like the curse is still active like in the choices of the other brothers and the choices that they end up making afterwards like Kelogorm and Kurufin betraying Finrod right. in Nargothrond. But even, um, even like the choice like the choice that Finarfin made when he thinks that because things have been mostly reconciled, he chooses not to tell Thingol about the king's name. Who? Finarfin. No. Right. No. Uh, Angrod? Oh, yeah, Angrod. Sorry, that's right. Angrod, son of Finarfin. Finarfin. That's right. Finarfin is Tolkien seems to praise that action. He's like, because Angrod was wise, um, he did not tell Angrod. Yeah. Right, but being true, wise, yeah, and thinking all griefs are not forgiven. But I mean, that does come back to haunt them by not disclosing it, because when it is eventually disclosed, right? Yeah, Matthew. Because um, I wonder if that might be. Just oh, sorry, Robert, you had your hand up a while ago, I think. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, it does definitely seem like it works. It's it's pretty heavy speculation, but feels like there would have been a lot of infighting um, because the sons of Feanor were so. They're so grumpy about, you know, these people that made it after you bring the ships. Mm -hmm. Great. Now you're on land. I think it would have caused a lot of conflict. And then, you know, coming back and saying, oh, yeah, by the way, I killed your brother. It wouldn't have mattered if it was because he asked them to. Mm -hmm. He probably would have used that as ammo to start another fight. Yeah. So that reconciliation really, really helped the whole of Valerian, right. really. Yeah. It is a really beautiful moment. I, yeah, sure. I, yeah, like, like, say, that, you know, you were talking about Valerian and Thrones being kind of the break from the darkness and the, yeah. the suffering, but like that to me is the better right. moment because the, they they have finally reunited again. Yeah, and there's no beautiful. there's no men, again no mention of the Silmarils, no mention like it seems like for a moment the the, the oath the oath seems to be resting at the moment. Yeah. And in fact, doesn't it say the oath was at rest? I thought later. Was, something was like later. that. Yeah. yeah, Matthew. Um, yeah, so just on the subject of of, of free will, I. Went to the to the I found the the doom of Madness yeah. again, and the relevant part to this, like there's the curse of how they're going to to fade and stuff like that, yeah. and all the stuff about when they come back to um, Mandos, and, and and just to go back to the part about Fan or bef, uh, before it says uh, there long shall you abide, 
and yearn for your bodies, and find little pity, though through all though all whom you ye have slain should entreat for you. So you kind of get the sense that yeah. perhaps when they go back, it's it is the matter that they're, they're just not allowed um, yeah. at the moment. Um, but so with uh, with regard to all their all their works coming to naught, um, there's their oath shall their oath shall drive them. Right, he identifies and yet betray them and ever snatch away the very treasures that they have sworn to pursue to evil end shall all things turn that they begin well and by treason of kin unto kin and the fear of treason shall this come to pass the dispossessed shall they be forever so it is I mean it, re- it reads to me like it's it's it's, um, it's it's prophetic but it's he's, he's prophesying what their own oath is going to do right. and their own fears yeah that's a good point I like how dispossessed is mentioned there and they're called the dispossessed here in this chapter yeah yeah, yeah Sophia I also like how many ways, like how many ways that like treason of kin to kin and fear of treason can yeah. be interpreted because it's like it's both like Caligorm and Caruthan betraying Finrod in Nargothrond, um, and also like Caranthir, like the Caranthir, Caligorm, and Caruthan like not abiding by Mavros's like goodwill too. Like it's also the strife within the brothers as well. And, like, the fact that some of them are level-headed and some of them really, like, are just yeah. going against that, right? So I like I like that, too, because that ties into this chapter. Yeah. Okay, last... Yeah, Robert? Yeah, I guess the only thing that seems prescribed about that is that they're not allowed to come back. Yeah. Even though this is your punishment. For the rest of it's just going to be your own doing, but and the actual wait. punishment from us is that you're not allowed to come back, even no. though everyone mm-hmm. pretty right. Okay, we're almost done. Last thing, because I do want to give uh, some uh, space, and that is, I don't know if you noticed, when you looked at the map in the realms of Valerian and looked at all the different areas and all the different sort of little rulers of those areas, that there's one name that to me is conspicuously absent from that name, and that is Galadriel, who came in order to have a realm of her own and doesn't get one. If you noticed. And so I thought we could at least spend the last five minutes talking about Galadriel, who we haven't spoken to. Yet. And she does have a nice arc in this chapter. Yes, Sarah? I want to touch on, I, I do want to talk about Galadriel as well. Yeah. But one of the things that I noticed when I was looking at the way that they divide land, and also when they go to ask Thingol for land, Thingol outlines the places they can live yeah. and specifically says that they're empty. Right? right. I mean, we talked about it, I think, last time too, when they were coming over. I mentioned that. Um, one of the interesting things about the elves coming back is that there's actually hypothetically enough space that they're not dispossessing right. other people by coming back to live there. Right. Um, yeah. Which you you notice very clearly in this is like you don't get to live where the other people are. He names out the places yeah. they can go and they don't go to Austerian. Austerian right. is not an option because there are already people there. Yeah. And neither is Doria. You don't get to live right. where my people are. I'm not putting them up in my house for you, even if you are impressive. You go live over here. Yeah. And it is, in fact, less about yeah, land in that moment yeah. than it is about authority. Yeah. Right? And, uh, but it's also his people. Right. Right? Like, he's been king over right. all of these people. Yeah. Even the Green Elves in Australia yeah. who aren't really under his his authority, he doesn't, oh, he doesn't open that space up either. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sophia? Um, I mean, honestly, I felt... Like, with Galadriel, I felt less, like... Because we know that Galadriel was inserted into this after. Mm, like, we know right. the mentions of Galadriel were thrown into the story after, like, The Lord of the Rings, because 
like both through tracking her revision history, also the fact that she's not in Book of Lost Tales and she's not in Lay of Lathian. And the Lay right. of Lathian specifically says that um, uh, Finarfin has four children, not five. Yep. So she's not even a child of Finarfin at that point. Um, so for me, like it felt more like this was all sketched out and then Galadriel was added afterwards. Mm. And like the fact that she doesn't get a kingdom now doesn't really bother me because she gets a kingdom later right. so you can kind of see how like that desire to have a kingdom like tempers over time but yeah. never goes away it just kind of bubbles and bubbles and bubbles through like ages and ages right. and ages and ages and ages and all of a sudden she gets her kingdom yeah. like way later <laughs> well but it's interesting so, i mean part of her development uh, what i like here is the mm-hmm. fact is that she spends all this time with Melian, yeah. right mm-hmm. And, and it's almost like like Gandalf or Oloran spending time with Neonor to learn wisdom, right? So now Galadriel spends time with Melian, I think, to learn wisdom, right? And to get a, a Lembus purpose. <laughs> but but uh, but you know what I mean? So I love I love that moment when she connects with Melian and they start hanging out. That's so cool. Yeah, Sarah? Yeah, I was gonna say that that was important to me too because uh, you've got because meanwhile, so everyone's fighting over the land, and they're fighting, you know, Melkor, and everyone's everyone's at war. And Gladriel's like, first of all, she's like, I can wait. Yeah. yeah. Like, it'll come. <laughs> I'll get to my kingdom. But also, like, she spends the time while everyone else is causing strife to learn how to manage a kingdom yeah. from Melian. And, like, I feel like, ultimately... Um, the relationship between Thingol and Melian and the relationship between Galadriel and Celeborn in which in the relationship between Galadriel and Celeborn you can tell that Galadriel is the authority, yeah. right? Yeah. And Thingol and Melian it's not as overt, I feel like. I feel like Thingol still seems to be always making these choices and you're like, you just didn't listen to Melian. Right. But Melian's got the real authority here because yeah. she's protecting the kingdom. It's, right. it's her strength that keeps the kingdom alive. Um, and so you just like in the background of everyone else causing problems, you've got these two wis- two women plotting about how to build really great kingdoms. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And like how to run things. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, like it's interesting the similarities that you then later see between Lothlorien and right. Dorian, right? Yeah. Um, Hidden kingdoms. Yeah, they're very uh, similar. Yeah. Um, one of the other things, this is, I mean, kind of tangential, but that I think is interesting about the setting up of the, the kingdoms of the Noldor at the moment um, and their realms, and might shed a little bit of light on what's going on with Galadriel too, is that they're all defensively structured right now, mm-hmm. right? They set up these divisions along the mountains towards the north to mm-hmm. prevent uh, Morgoth's entry into Beleriand. And there's a lot of lines about how it's even like they live here and fortify here because then they could defend this area and the part by the March of Magros is, um, is, a, is a weak point there. And I wonder if you could almost speculate too that at the moment they're setting, they're really setting up realms to, for the purpose of, of defending from Morgoth. And that's, I mean, not exactly what Gladwell might have had in mind when it comes to the mm. ruling and maintaining of a realm, which perhaps is something more like Doria before the Noldor arrived. So I wonder if that might be something going on with with, with Biden time as well. Yeah. Sophia? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, like, 
one of the things that's super important for Galadriel's character development is that like when she's in Valinor, she I think it's her and Turgon who are like, we don't like Feanor, but hey, this idea of ruling a realm, like yeah. yes, excellent. So I think it's that sort of, you know, that like pride and that like power hungriness is like tempered by the fact that she waits so long yeah, and right. like learns stuff from Melian like before establishing her yeah. kingdom. Also, um, I appreciate like this because I mean like Galadriel doesn't like her storyline doesn't finish in the Silmarillion, but her storyline finishes in the Lord of the Rings, um, and so I just like appreciate the fact that Gal like Galadriel is one of the few women in this book who doesn't have their storyline just aborted, um, because like. Um, if Galadriel was like just in this book, you would kind of be like, oh, she really wanted to rule her own kingdom, and then she met this nice man, and then she kind of like right. had a passive existence and learned cool stuff from Melian, but like, what about rulership? Right. But the fact that like she does eventually get her own kingdom is just like, yes, good. Yeah. No problems. <laughs> well, not only kingdom, but I mean, she becomes instrumental in. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like the fact that she just like, you know, she like. She has these like ideas of rulership, and then she goes, and then she learns a lot about effective rulership, yeah. and also meets a nice man, right. and then later on she gets her own like kingdom and yeah. is a very and effective ruler yeah. and does all these things, and right. it's like it's it's kind of like Thingol and Melian, where it's just like this character is frozen until the time when everyone else is gone, and all of a sudden you need them, mm -hmm. except like more extreme, where right. like Galadriel. Is just like in the background for so long, like she outlasts all of the right. other Noldor to a truly yeah. impressive extent. But then she's right where she needs to be right. to like fight the uh, necromancer of Dol Guldur and like yeah, and engage in, the in three battles Tom. during the War of the Ring where they try yeah. to invade Lord Morgan, which we don't hear about in Sif until a year ago. <laughs> yeah, Matthew. Um, that just reminded me the the subject of the. The, the cutout storylines for, for some of the other female characters. I was doing some research this week for a paper I was writing on the textual history of the Silmarillion, cool. and one of the things I did encounter was that it's uh, a one of the common complaints about the editing of the Silmarillion was that Chris may have taken out a few of those, um, including Finway and Muriel. Right. Was mm -hmm. that like specific? Like I remember just like, encountering that. Like, no, it's this is it's almost completely cut out. So. I don't know. There is something there that's not in the edited Silmarillion for whatever reason. That's a good um, point. Mm -hmm. How much of this is Christopher not Tolkien? Apparently, uh, a decent yeah, amount yeah. when it comes to to, to cutting out the female yeah. storylines. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That would be cool if you like have if you still have like links and stuff. I'd be super interested in reading about that. Yeah, I think I still got a book actually, which is where I found that. So. Okay, yeah. I would be super interested. Yeah. All right, so we gotta we have to stop, but we didn't. There is one piece that we didn't get to, which I I do think we have to talk to talk about, which we're gonna start with next week, and that is uh, Finrod and yes. Turgon. So we're gonna start with them next week. All right, great, and then otherwise we're we're reading the next two chapters for next week as well. So, cool. Thanks. This was so good. It's always so good.